We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. My country, my damn country. Give me my Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast, and I'm your host, Sasha Kapustina. Thank you for tuning in. Wow, what a week. How are you holding up? It was crazy. This week on the podcast, the second part of my conversation with journalist and activist Asra Nomani. I delayed it because I didn't want it to get lost in the storm of last week's news. Not that we can expect this week to get much better. But if anything, the events on Capitol Hill only highlighted the themes that Asra and I talked about. The danger of extremism, the importance of standing up to racism and anti-Semitism, and the vigilance required in pursuit of justice. I hope you'll listen to part one of the interview with Asra, but in case you didn't, here's a quick intro and recap. Asra Namani is a former Wall Street Journal correspondent. She has written for the Washington Post, New York Times, Time, and basically every publication under the sun. You've seen her on CNN, you've heard her on NPR. Asra talks about extremism and Muslim reform. She was born in India, she was brought to the US as a young child, and she grew up in a conservative Muslim family. She also talked about how she only finally integrated into American society in her late 20s with the help of her dear friend and Wall Street Journal colleague, Daniel Pearl. Asra was also the last person who saw him in Karachi the day when he got kidnapped in January of 2002. You may remember his name from the news. Daniel Pearl became the first Western journalist to be beheaded by the Pakistani militants. His murder was filmed and Parts of it were shown on TV. This happened just months after 9-11 and only added to the shock of that time. In the moment when those images were shown on TV, life split into before and after for the journalist community. Because for them, it became crystal clear that Geneva Convention is not going to be protecting them in this war. In fact, their press ID and vest are making them a target. Daniel Pearl became a symbol of courage and standing up to extremism and anti-Semitism. His widow Marianne wrote a memoir that was adapted into a film starring Angelina Jolie. His name was added to the Holocaust Memorial on Miami Beach as the first non-Holocaust victim. International Press Institute named Daniel Pearl one of its world press freedom heroes. And the former mayor of New York, Ed Koch, requested that his own tombstone be inscribed with Daniel Pearl's last words. My father is Jewish, my mother is Jewish, I am Jewish. There are schools and awards named after Daniel Pearl. There's an annual lecture at UCLA. Christopher Hitchens, Anderson Cooper, and Larry King have delivered their lectures in the past years. And this year, CNN Jake Tapper will be speaking on February 2nd. And so Daniel Pearl's name lives on as a symbol of journalistic integrity and courage. The terrorists didn't manage to erase it. Here's the second part of my conversation with Asher Namani. We pick up on the day Daniel and his wife Marianne arrived in Karachi. So Danny and Marianne came to visit me on January 22nd, 2002. And um, 
they Danny had a big interview. He was on the trail of this guy that he thought was the facilitator for a man named Richard Reed. The reason why we take off our shoes when we go through TSA is um, because this guy, Richard Reed, tried to light his shoes on fire and have an ex this explosive go off on a flight from Paris to the US in the in December 2001. Everybody thought that it was you know, the next wave of 9-11 type attack. Mm -hmm. There's a story that had been written in the Boston Globe that the facilitator for Richard Reed was a man by the name of Sheikh Jelani. And so Danny was on the chase to get an interview with this Sheikh Jelani. And he met a man who claimed to be a student of Jelani's. Who's, and that man said that he could set up an interview for Danny. And one day, Danny texted me and said, I'm coming to Karachi. And that's because he had scored this big interview. I was so excited, you know, that my buddy and his wife were coming to town. I ran around. I got fancy bubble bath for Marianne because she's pregnant. And I was like, she needs a good bubble bath. Um, oh. And I got uh, beer because there's these um, bootleggers in um, Pakistan. Wow, in Karachi, yeah. you got beer. Oh yeah, they literally, the elite have the bootleggers names and numbers on their cell phones to order, yeah, whiskey and beer. And I was just gonna show my friend a good time, right? Like the kind of joy that he taught me that we could have in this world. And I was just, you know, ordered biryani that night, which is like delicacy. And, um, and my friend came unbeknownst to us this man who had set up the interview had lured danny into a trap his name real name was omar sheikh he was this british pakistani kid who had gone to london school of economics he had dropped out to become a jihadi in the 1990s he had gone to india to kidnap tourists on behalf of the kashmiri militant groups he got caught and he went to jail in India for five years before uh, hijacking by militants freed him in a exchange you know, of prisoners in India for the passengers on the plane. So this guy, Omar Sheikh, was now running around free in Pakistan and unbeknownst to poor Danny, that was the guy that he met who claimed to be able to set up the interview with this Sheikh Jelani. Oh, and so Danny didn't know who, who he was talking to. He, he had a fake Id identity. Fake identity. And the, the guy was good because he had grown up in, the, he was born in the UK and he was, grew up in the UK. So he spoke really good English. He wore spectacles. He had blue jeans and a collared shirt on, you know, so he, he had all of the pretense of like a respectable middle-class type of kid who just a, you know, he looked safe. Yeah, same safe. So that's how this guy, Omar Sheikh, lured Danny to Karachi, saying that the interview would be in Karachi. Why do you think they targeted him? Well, the thing is that I've definitely identified from all my reporting is that they didn't target him. He was uh, what they call in crime a target of opportunity. Mm -hmm. So Danny was looking for this shake and his fixer, they call the, the local journalists who helped them, his fixer had called a jihadi group named Harkut al-Mujahideen. And when the kid who picked up the phone 
uh, answered. The journalist fixer for Danny told him, oh, I have a journalist who's looking to interview the Sheikh Jelani. And Omar Sheikh was in the room at the time and heard this and said, okay, I've got a target. Like I can set this up. And then he, he poor thing, Danny just fell into this trap that Omar then set. Looking back at it, we know what ended up happening, but was the plan from the get-go to do what they did? There's definitely no clear indication that the uh, intention was murder, but that was the outcome. And Because a lot of times people take hostage in order to exchange for someone, like, or to get money, obviously, or to get notoriety. It was the first time it ended in, in such a terrible way. way. Yeah. So Omar Sheikh had a whole list of demands, but we never got the phone call for negotiating uh, any of these terms. And they were outlandish. Maybe for a terrorist, they make sense. Free every prisoner in Guantanamo. Uh, they literally wanted these F-16 fighter jets that the U.S. had not delivered to Pakistan. Uh, they... Uh, want, they did want a few prisoners here and there freed, but we never got a phone call uh, for negotiation. So, How did you find out about these demands? So Danny, poor thing, then he went, he didn't come back. Like Marianne had this big dinner that she'd cooked and I had brought, invited all my new friends and he never came. And, and, oh my gosh, it was just shocking for us, right? Like we ran to his computer finally when we realized that something was weird and I sat at his keyboard. And so you just kept have... calling him and he, he didn't. Yeah, Marianne kept calling him all evening and, and kept getting the recording that the phone was not uh, on. And I went straight into his emails and I started seeing this uh, communication that he'd been having with this guy this named Bashir. And that was the fake name that Omar Sheikh used. And, and the moment my heart just dropped was when I looked at his emails and I saw the email address for Bashir and what Omar Sheikh had used as his email address was nobutmashi at yahoo.com and I was like oh my effing god I didn't teach Danny that word I had taught him how to say do you think I'm an owl to taxi drivers because in India, Pakistan, an owl is actually considered dumb. And so you say, do you think Ulu is the word for owl? And so I taught him Ulu because if he's getting ripped off by a taxi driver, I wanted mm. him to be able to say, do you think I'm an owl? Mm. So I taught him that. I taught him this and that. But I didn't teach him the word badmash. And a badmash is a troublemaker. It's like a bad guy in Bollywood movies. Mm. It's like the guy with the long mustache that's diabolical and I was like oh my god so this person that's setting up an interview with Danny for a shake is using no budmashi at yahoo.com I was like there's there's no reason like that makes no sense and and I was like oh, felt so bad like I felt so bad that I hadn't seen his emails that I, I could have just said oh I don't know that's like a red flag for me you know just cultural cue Mm -hmm. So like, as in someone who is serious, wouldn't use such a word or yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you would never like a mother scolds a little boy and says, don't be a budmash. You know, it's mm -hmm. like nothing you 
own or claim for yourself. And especially like this is a supposed so religious leader that Danny's going to be meeting. So like his disciple is using no badmashi. It would totally not make sense. Okay. So poor Danny, he went off for that interview though, like journalists do. And we, we didn't know what had happened until the 27th, which was the first day that we got this email ransom note. And this would have been sent to, um, journalists all around the world. And that's how we first knew that Danny had been kidnapped because they had what you call sign of life photos. Uh, and this was the photo of him with a gun to his head, his hand in chains. Um, and he was holding in, a newspaper, right? Of that Of that day. Sign of life, exactly. So that you know that this person was alive on this day and that newspaper had been published, you know, after the 23rd. Yeah. And so that's when we knew that this was serious. And the response was overwhelming. Like President Bush spoke, like all over the world, the response was crazy. Like everybody, everything was thrown to save him. Yes, everything was thrown except, um, you know, not enough. The FBI, Jedid, Karachi, the prime minister, uh, president, but it wasn't enough. And we didn't even know, but Danny had been killed probably within one week. And we didn't know for five weeks because it took that much time for them to edit this ridiculous, absurd, horrible video documenting Danny's murder and, and figure out their distribution plan, you know, like how they were gonna get it to the world. Um, they didn't have the internet uploads like we do today. Mm -hmm. I think YouTube might not have even been a thing. I'm so sorry for your loss. And I know oh, it's so you. difficult thank you. to talk. I can, I I know you can't see, but I, I am getting teary eyed and I have a knot oh. in my throat because I can imagine, I cannot really, I can only imagine, I don't know, can I even imagine what what was the terror of that moment? Yeah, terror is a good word because it's like, I don't, I don't, I've never, and, and this is like back to, you know, what we learn, how, what we learn, how we learn to be what we are. And, and, um, and I, I never did allow it to like be process as terror, you know, even though that's what it was, I, I didn't, if I did, then I would be paralyzed. Right. And so that's where I really learned how we dissociate to cope too, how we separate to survive, because if I had actually, um, you know, just surrendered to the, the terror and the fear and the reality, then I would have just curled up in a ball, right? And been like Im immobile. Were you able to watch that tape? How, how did you receive it? Well, we received it um, through the FBI. So they didn't, the militants didn't send it to the media. They thought they were delivering it to a journalist oh. because we got word that they had a video to deliver. And then the FBI agent just pretended to be an executive with a media state outlet. They watched the whole video and they arrived at my house and we didn't know this. We didn't know what was going on. They just sort of all disappeared and they all arrived at my house. They knocked at the door and these men, you know, these grown men who have seen everything of the worst in this world. Oh my God. They're like faces were just crestfallen. They 
literally looked like they'd seen a ghost. And that was when this Pakistani police officer who had been leading the investigation told Marianne, I'm, I'm sorry, I couldn't bring your Danny home. And, and that was you know, the moment then that we learned that Danny had been murdered. And so you watched the tape then? I, I didn't actually. I didn't watch it that night. They wouldn't give it to me. I am the um, investigative mind. A lot of people won't be able to understand it and, and would even judge it. But I'm the kind of person that had to see the evidence, right? Like I have to, I have to see it firsthand because I have to see the clues to the uh, murderer. I have to know I, what is it that Danny lived in those last seconds. Um, so I didn't, they didn't let me watch it. They didn't give it to me that day. They described it because I insisted, you know, how do you have proof? Uh, but then years later for the investigation into the details about Danny's kidnapping and murder, I did watch it. And I did watch it again and again and um, for clues. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, again, it's one something that uh, is hard to explain, but there was this part of my brain that had reacted to, I, I can't say this is part of my brain, but my brain had reacted to this by, you know, dissociating, it's a word that um, I keep referring back to, by compartmentalizing. And so when I watched it, like I watched it not as like my friend there yeah. losing his life, but just understand, just to have a clue into him. Into him and into them. like Into what... them, exactly. And for me, it was into them. What did they have him say? Well, they had Danny relate the identity of his family, the journey that his family had made to Israel. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, they didn't know all of these details, of course. So Danny himself related that this uh, grandparent of his, Heim Pearl, had come to Israel before it was Israel, creating this town called B'nai Brak, where they had the street named after his ancestor. Um, they He related in his last words, then my father is Jewish, my mother is Jewish, I am Jewish. Uh, and and I, I felt like in those moments, because Danny, Danny knew anyway, like Danny knew the dangers of being Jewish among extremists for sure. Mm -hmm. And so his, um, his volunteering that information and relating it to me was a fusion of, of his identity in his existence in all that he was. Um, and I just really feel like he could have run, you know what I mean? He could have run from who he was at that moment. Um, he could have disavowed Israel. Yeah. You know, he could have done a lot, but he didn't. Even when the poor prisoners have to do that, like I know it's more complicated than an than a, um, identity thing because it's existential because you have to do whatever you can to survive. Of course. But by some alchemy of that moment, Danny didn't deny any of his identity and he owned it and he embraced it. And and I really uh, admire him for that, for leaving that for his family also and for his parents and for the world to be able to see that you can, even in the face of such adversity and, um, and challenge, just be who you are. And that tape, and that's, it's it's odd for me to to talk about it because it was such a huge uh, story here, and I did not know about it until I 
started preparing for our conversation. Oh, wow. Because at the time I was living in Russia. Yeah, it must have been shocking for you to go back and read these details of Danny's case group. You're like, wait, how did I miss this? Yeah, right? it was. It was. Well, I also was, I mean, younger. I was just in college and not necessarily so plugged in uh, to the news. But it was, I was surprised to find out as I was preparing to to see how big of a story it was here and how impactful it was. Yeah. Yeah. And there was something about there was something about Danny that I think really pierced um, any cynicism, cynicism. Yeah. That people have. And and I, I want to tell people, having read every single email of his that I could have possibly found, that the sincerity that people feel about him is 100 percent on there's no skeletons in his closet of like the real Danny that was this way or that way. I mean, he was really like the stand-up guy that I knew. Um, even when I poured through his text messages and, and emails, because um, because there then I saw like, man, this guy, like he just like approached everything like the wit and humor and the whole like, that's when I saw again the email that he'd sent, you know, that was just casual after the 9-11 attack, like, oh, yeah, there's this war going on, but uh, can I still look for a husband for you? You know, because he just, it was a dark, dark moment for people, but he was still always trying to, like, find some humor, or find uh, some goodness in all of it. And so what was it like for you to find yourself in that oh storm gosh. besides your personal situation, like, so much attention to this story and such a big deal. Yeah, you know, I learned a number of lessons. How did you navigate that? Because you, you were not a public person necessarily, even though you were a journalist. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, um, that's true. Like back then, too, as journalists, as print journalists, we never went on TV for anything. Because if we did, that would blow our cover if we did some big investigative story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there was no concept of like, the, the journalists going on CNN and talking about their story for three minutes like there is today. Mm -hmm. There's a couple things that I learned. One was that we as journalists do need to be a little bit more self-aware about the uh, impact of our work. Like I would deal with journalists now reporting the story and they would want to know every detail of the investigation and the leads and the this and the that. And finally, from the other side, I could see like, I don't want any of those details out. You know, I don't want anything out. I don't want anyone getting a scoop on anything because we got to catch the bad guys. So mm -hmm. I, I suddenly understood when people want to keep things quiet, you know, which was the exact opposite of everything that I believed until then. But now I was like ticked off when people overreported and mm. especially reported details about the investigation. Um, like, you know, just the one detail that Danny was Jewish ended up leaked and put into the Pakistani newspaper. And when we saw that in the newspaper the, the next morning, we were just like devastated. Why? Marianne, Why was that such a... Well, well, Marianne just responded, you know, with, with the truth, which was that it was like a death sentence because the anti-Semitism and hate of Jews was so profound, you know, among extremists that... They would use it, you know, as they did as the excuse to kill Danny. Oh, so that was before you knew 
Yes, that was before okay. we knew what happened. That was like, so that was like an example where I realized, wow, journalists can like screw things up too for people. Like I, it, I kind of really got a sense of the responsibility that mm-hmm. we have to something other than the, the quote story. And truth. That, yeah, yeah. I mean, because these are all truths, you know, but, but, and, and you don't, you don't, you should definitely not engage in lying, but, um, but there's uh, also um, Time. times for, different yeah exactly so I learned that um I learned really deeply I uh, that's when I you know became a Muslim reformer uh and a Muslim feminist because that's when I realized like the um sexist violent interpretations of Islam had to go and when when I saw the consequence with Danny's murder I had clarity let me ask you this because I'm agnostic and I grew up in post-Soviet Russia, which was atheist. Soviet Union was atheist and I'm of Jewish descent, but my mother wasn't Jewish. So I had that uh, identity uh, conundrum to resolve for myself. But um, I did have a a period of search for myself and in, in the world of religion and spirituality and for me, that ended up with after spending five months in Jerusalem, I would say I became atheist oh. because to me, I could not reconcile so much hate that religion brings with with myself and with what I was searching for. Yeah. And obviously, you come from a completely different space into that. You grew up with religion and faith. But I can imagine that in that moment when people who claimed to be devout Muslims first uh, killed your friend in such a horrific way and used his death for their cause. And then also on a personal level, that guy who you were seeing abandoned you. Right. So cowardly. Uh, And I can imagine that would challenge your faith a lot. Yes. Yeah. How did you not give up on God in that moment? Yeah, you know, I, I definitely um, changed my relationship with faith. My answer uh, was a different one to fight within my faith because I knew that my faith was not going to uh, go away. And I knew that this fight had to happen. But the reason why like, it just stayed within me was because it was the... Um, safety net that I'd had spiritually as a child in times of trouble. Uh, you know, like when, when I didn't speak even of, of uh, this girl, Barbara leapfrogging on my shoulders as a little girl, I, I would pray, you know, I would pray for peace of mind. There's this word we have, sukun, um, which means peace of mind. And I would open my hands as a little girl and I would pray for peace of mind. Mm-hmm. When we moved, I had to leave my little rabbit, Buffy Nibbles, behind in New Jersey when we moved to West Virginia. And I would pray for Buffy to be safe. And it was my safety net. Some people could just say that's like my indoctrination, right? And I would even say that because I was just indoctrinated into, into faith. But it's what I knew. It was became part of my reflexive response to distress, even though I'd been on the path of Buddhism and Hinduism, when I was confronted with the worst horror of my life, the men, the Pakistani cops and the FBI officers came to the door to tell us that Danny was dead. Marianne screamed like this 
blood curdling scream and and went to her ran to her room and locked it and i sat outside on the uh, stairs and i said bismillahirrahmanirrahim in the name of god the beneficent the merciful um and i started this chapter that i had learned since i was a little girl from my mother for protection because i wanted protection for marianne and i wanted protection for her unborn baby that was my default that was my reflex and in the next weeks um that's where i returned even though i had so much anger right like i had so much rage i'm not gonna pretend like i wasn't uh really ticked off it you know people say that like you, you have clarity when it becomes personal to you about different issues or different things in this world. So I've known since my childhood about this growing extremism within Islam. Yeah. I grew up with it um, in the 70s and then especially 79 after the Saudis and um, Iran started having their competition out extreming each other. So how I think of it sometimes like mm -hmm. out trying to outdo each other. And, and then they exported their Shia and Sunni extremism to communities, including mine in Morgantown, West Virginia. Like I saw it growing up because then the Saudi students would come with their ridiculous Saudi interpretations of the Quran. They would change the rules at our potluck dinners and make it so that the men got the big room and the women had to go sit in this a studio apartment with the kids suffocated without any food and drink, except when the men brought it to the door, you know, and I, and I lived through 9-11, but then the moment I saw these, you know, just awful human beings use the religion to slay my buddy, I was like, okay, I will fight this ideology till I die because it took a great human being from this earth and it has to disappear like it it has to go the ways of all bad ideas like there was a time during the catholic inquisition so that they could kill christians right their own fellow christians at different points religion has been used to kill people and every time it keeps re-emerging but at least for my generation i was like this is our task and look at look at where we are though today i mean it's a combination of politics and money Let's be honest, it's not just like good intentions, but we're now at a place where Muslim nations are recognizing the state of Israel. You know, uh, we are at a place where Saudi government has, is, is confronting their anti-Semitism in their, in their textbooks. It's not, I don't ever, you'll see in, in all of this, all these dramatic headlines over these past months of advancement, You'll never once see me saying, oh, good job and thank you or applause emoji, you know, nothing. Because I'm like, we're just doing what needed to have been done. If we are doing anything right, it's our mea culpa. We should ask the world for forgiveness for putting out this ideology of extremism. And, and that's made me very unpopular, right, among a lot of my Muslim crowds. I was just going to ask you, like, what was the response to you as a woman 
starting to question things. You know, we're a shame-based culture. So they circle the wagons. They were like, you're the troublemaker. You're causing problems. Uh, you're embarrassing our religion. You're dishonoring us. Why are you, this isn't what true Islam is. And I was like, I don't, I don't care about the true anything. I care about the reality of what we're seeing in the world. And in the face of all that, um, I think it didn't matter to me whatever names they called me and how unpopular it is because like a shining light before me is Danny, you know, like he, he's not here because this network of men infused their, their work with this ideology of hate and that we have to own it. It had to happen. So now today we see a Me Too movement among Muslim women. We see women joining the call that I made 20 years ago for women's rights in mosques. It's not at all where we need to be, but it's better than 20 years ago. Though 20 years ago was worse than 50 years ago because it was, you know, not, it was before all of this political Islam had become an, uh, a weapon by government. So do you people. feel that the historically the Islam has made the turn? I think so, because so many of these Muslim countries are run by dictatorships or kingdoms or, you know, but whatever, like whatever men, whatever they call themselves, they're uh, not democracies. And so even then, like in a democracy, the whole movement for political Islam is so strong that I don't even know that we could win with progressive ideas in a democracy, just like Egypt is a perfect example, because the Muslim Brotherhood was so strong there and so more advanced than progressive democratic movements. Well, yeah, I mean, it kind of the problem starts right there where there is no separation of church and state. Like it's that's where democracy kind of ends. And, and that's where it, democracy where I, the way can, I see it. <laughs> yeah, I see it too that way. And democracy can never win in a situation where you have a fusion of church and state because uh, the church will just dominate. They'll just use every lever of power that they have and they will use God, right, as their the ultimate election judge. Um, that's what worries but, me about America a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm as opposed to like Christian theocracy, you know, as I am Muslim theocracy. You know, we, we created this movement that we call Muslim reform movement. And in that movement, secular governance is a critical component because we've seen that political Islam and all of the um, institutions created around it are used to suppress people and especially women um, in, in, in expressing ideas that would otherwise be legitimate in a democracy because then they use religion to shut you up because you're um, saying something against Islam or you're saying something against a royal family who's descendant of the prophet of Islam. You know, they use all the excuses to basically suppress a democracy including women's rights. So, um, oh, a woman can um, only vote if she's covered from head to toe, you know, like, so then you're, like, you know, there's just so many absurd ideas. Uh, forget vote, right? Like in Afghanistan, like walk the streets. Yeah. Um, so that's- Or get education or travel yeah. so or drive. Yeah, so you can't claim that's a democracy when a citizen doesn't have their full rights uh, of of self-determination. Well, here's my question there. As an agnostic, as a non-religious person, my concern always is, well, how can you truly reform a religion staying within it if 
by default, there is the dogma, there is the text that kind of rules the whole thing. Like, how can you reform it from within, staying true to it? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, once you, I, I learned fancy words like hermeneutics, the study of sacred text. And so I learned um, that even when you study sacred text, there's many different approaches. You can take a literal approach. And this is true in law too, right? Yeah. I take the same approach that lawyers take to legal interpretation, to religious interpretation. And so within legal interpretation, you're still working within case law, within the words that are written down in a constitution, for example, but you may interpret it differently, right? Like when you say all men are created equal at some point, it's not just all men, right? It becomes all men and women, boys and girls. And it's not just me, but it's just, it's like all religious scholars look at faith from the lens of interpretation. That's why we have schools of theology. That's why we have uh, schools of jurisprudence even in, in Islam. Like for example, the um, inheritance. So like in the Quran, a girl was given less inheritance than a boy because the girl was supposed to get the financial protection from the man she married. And so the, it wasn't supposed to be hereditary, right? So then now we have girls that don't get married. We have girls that get divorces. You know, we have split assets in marriages. Mm -hmm. So we got to move along with that time. And so that's one of the arguments used today to give women, daughters and sons equal inheritance. And so you move forward and you say, okay, for the seventh century, that was the interpretation, but for the 21st century, this is how we move forward on the intention of that, of that uh, text. And so, and then another example, like I have a dog now in my house, I have a pet it's the first time in our ancestry that we have a dog as a pet because we inherited this hadith that was related to the saying of the Prophet Muhammad that no angels will visit a home in which a dog is living. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I saw on your Instagram, you allowed your dog to lie on your prayer mat. Yes, my dad does. My dad does. Like Your dad? My dad yeah, my dad, I do too, but but, but but most importantly, my father does because my father prays five times a day. He has a, a little mark on his forehead from touching the prayer rug so often. But he's, he's and he's the guy who thought this, that you can't, couldn't have a dog. Well, I, you know, now there's challenges to that hadith, that it's not legitimate and that dogs now get rabies vaccinations, you know, and that we walk our dogs and they don't pee in a corner of our house. But it was because of cleanliness back then and and health, you know, because they didn't have vaccinations. They didn't have flea collars, right? Yeah. So dogs were considered like, like in a rural society, a traditional society, like they have a job to do, but they're not your pets. But now Lily is a part of our family. She's in our holiday photos and, and she indeed does love to lie down on my dad's prayer rug. <laughs> It's probably, she can probably feel like the warmth of his, you know, touch on it or something like it's that. His smell. Yeah, his smell. Yes, exactly. I didn't think about that. His scent is on it. Exactly. Um, it's his place. She knows mm -hmm. that he's with him in the, on yeah. that spot. But so that's, got, that's we, crazy, kind of. Like, I mean, a lot of Muslims would not approve of that. When I Even when I saw this, and, and I'm not Muslim, and I saw this, I'm like, wow, that's radical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then and then there's my mom who grew up in a conservative family. She literally wore the face veil as 
as the interpretation that what girls had to wear. Well, in America, she took off the scarf by choice. She raised me with this other argument that I make within Islamic feminism that women are not obligated to cover their hair. Um, and, and that's a radical idea to so many of these Muslim uh, political organizations that want to keep us covered and governments. But, um, but my mom, she's the best. So she's my, she's, I don't, I, she's the one who's always encouraged me that like religion has to have common sense in it. And um, so she, I told her, oh, mom, there's all these people who aren't going to come to our house now because we have Lily in it. And um, she's like, good. I don't want them here anyway. <laughs> I love it. Your mom is such a rock star. Um, I know we've gone way, way over yeah. the time that we, yeah. we were supposed to, but I do want to get to the last bit there with Danny's story. Tell me what's going on. Why all of a sudden Danny's story is coming back to the news? In June 2002, the anti-terrorism court in Pakistan convicted four men in Danny's kidnapping and murder. One of the men was the man who laid the trap for Danny, leading to his murder. And his name was Omar Sheikh. And so Omar and these three co-conspirators were convicted of terrorism in 2002. So 18 years later, in the midst of COVID, two judges in Karachi ruled in an appeal of that 2002 decision that three of the men were completely innocent and that Omar Sheikh was only guilty of abduction, not even kidnapping and not terrorism. And so this ruling was just a shock to us. It was one that we did not expect. And so since April, Danny's parents have been fighting to keep these four men in jail. They have hired a Pakistani criminal attorney and he has filed a appeal of that ruling in this Pakistani Supreme Court. So to our shock as that hearing is continuing in Pakistan Supreme Court, those two judges from the lower court again ruled on Christmas Eve that the men should be freed. And we're just about ready to free them when the government stepped in and said that, you know, they're going to uh, appeal that freedom until the Supreme Court case is concluded. And, and so we're just, you know, living uh, a nightmare as we're trying to make sure that we can realize justice for Danny. Uh, because every day, any day, every day, we, we wonder whether these four men will be freed. And, and in that part of the world, though anywhere, of course, people can just disappear and not be held responsible. Um, so this week in the Pakistan Supreme Court, Danny's parents' attorney will be going back to court in order to argue that those four men should stay in jail. Right. How is it, I, I don't fully understand, like within the court system of Pakistan, why would these two judges make that decision all these years later and go back on the, on the decision? I'll tell you how it makes sense logically, um, but it should have been dealt with immediately, is that uh, the case has been under appeal. So what happened is the appeal was never heard. And actually, one of the reasons it was not heard was because the defense attorneys wouldn't show up to court. Like, I literally would get the orders about hearings being delayed 
so often that I started tuning it out in my own mind because I was like, this is not going to happen. And, and it was the defense attorneys who would say, oh, we have a wedding to go to and we can't represent our, yeah, this is so classic, represent our client in court or, oh, one attorney is sick and so we can't fully have our representation there, on and on. And so it was just explained to me that the one of the reasons why that happened by the defense side was because they were waiting for the right moment. For the noise to die out, kind of? For the noise to die out and to get judges that would be sympathetic. Oh, so these judges are more um, in line with the terrorists? I mean... Yeah, it's really a disturbing notion. I haven't been able to establish their motivation, but I do know that they, the one judge in particular, KK Ara, he is a British Pakistani judge that has very minimal criminal um, background. And so he actually just came to leaps of conclusion that um, were not grounded in good, even criminal law analysis. Uh, and so they found maybe the, the, a, judge, a judge with the right level of ignorance about that kind of law to be able to further their case. Um, I don't, I have, you know, I'm a journalist, so I can't speculate about uh, what I, something that I haven't been able to report out, but I'm right. still, I'm still trying to report it out. And of course I have the same questions as everyone, which is, is he politically corrupt? Is he, um, you know, sympathetic? I don't think he, that he's ideologically sympathetic, but ultimately like what we hope is that the Supreme Court will reject his analysis. Wow. And what is the American response right now? This last couple of weeks have been really deep because the second judgment came out that these four men should be freed and the world awakened, you know, to the tragedy that that would represent. So that was really important and good for me to see, actually. Um, and the U.S. government also responded really aggressively, saying that if Omar Sheikh is freed, then they want to extradite him. Which body? Where did the response come from? The response has come from the State Department and the Justice Department. Omar Sheikh was indicted for the kidnapping um, in 2002 and in 1994 in India. And he had kidnapped an American citizen there also. Mm -hmm. So the acting attorney general in the U.S. issued a statement that Omar Sheikh would be indicted if he's freed from Pakistan. And so how that would unfold, like, technically, would... America just sent a request to Pakistan and Pakistan would have to, in the spirit of collaboration and all the international treaties, arrest him on behalf of American authority? Or how, how is that going to work? Yeah, I mean, with an extradition, right, you put the request into the government and then the government can either honor your extradition request or not. And it does, you know, matter what your relations are and it does impact, you know, your future relations. America did extradite the mastermind of the first World Trade Center attack from Pakistan. Mm. Yeah, so we have some precedent, you know, of individuals that have been um, extradited. Uh, we did extradite these this Pakistani who was um, responsible for the killing of some Americans outside the CIA headquarters. So, so we have some precedent. It's critical to Pakistan's future that they handle this case well. And so they, uh, we hope, will do the right thing. 
As in keep them in prison. And, and keep them in prison, yeah. And when will we hear about that? So we will hear the Supreme Court's decision this month, the month of January 2021. But a few things could happen. They could make a decision to keep them in jail. They could decide that, no, they will be freed. Or they could actually send the case back to the lower court to hear again. Oh, God. Just sort of starts the cycle all over again of the trial. Um, so all options are on the table uh, in terms of how we'll respond. But I think, you know, no matter what, like what I learned this year is that uh, vigilance is required. Like it's, it's, there's a saying, I guess, this idea that you have to be forever vigilant in, you know, advocating and, and, fighting for your values and your truths and um, the, you know, sense of justice that you want on, on any kind of issue or any kind of uh, topic. And so that's what I realized, like, you know, this is going to be lifelong for me and will probably be, have, be inherited by younger ones because Omar Sheikh is uh, now in his mid forties and he's a young man. And he could live a life, long life, always trying to get out of jail. And so I've, I've already, you know, asked the younger lawyers to pay close attention to the details so that they can wage this fight for decades to come. Wow. And, and you know, it, it's, it's like all of all like crimes against humanity. Uh, just that saying, never forget is important because that's part of continuing to stand up for what's right it's in your life right like I don't know the I'm kind of missing out on the words but it's like you don't just move on like and you don't just leave it behind I mean it's it's sort of like I'm just well for you to, it's such a life-defining story I mean yeah yeah but but you have a choice right like I could have just compartmentalized it and I I, I could but I chose it I chose to fuse it into my life and and I think that that's what I I realize now is I, I was on that journey, like you're saying, of fusing the different parts of my life and not compartmentalizing. And so, you know, as we were talking, and we talked about like how even in immigration, you know, you, you leave the old country behind or you leave this old grief behind or you think that you're going to compartmentalize this grief um, mm -hmm. that's happened or this trauma that's happened. And, and that's what this moment represented for me, right? It was a grief, it was a trauma, and it was in another land, right? And then I made another migration back to America for safety with my my own baby in my belly. And and I could have said, like, I'm out, out of this, right? Like, I'm over this. Like, this is not going to be my future. Um, but but I, I chose to integrate it. And I'm like, for good and for bad, right? Like, and I have to always keep it in balance because... I'm always thinking every day, like, I don't want to just live in the past, right? Because that's the other thing that, that can happen if, you, if you're too fused, right, to something in an unhealthy way. So always every day, like, honestly, every day, I check, I do a check on it, because I'm like, okay, am I like, am I like living in Pakistan time zone, um, and living in the past? Or am I maintaining, am I spending the right amount of time with my son and my relationship to my mother and going for a run in this present, right? Because that's what it means to be present also. Yeah. 
But, but, but when I think about being present, I think too that it's also including things from your past in an integrated way, yeah. you know? For and, sure. And yeah. if, there, if there is a silver lining to this story being brought back in, in, in well, wish in a different way, but people wouldn't really pay attention to something that happened 19 years ago otherwise, uh, and major news outlets wouldn't be paying attention if it wasn't such a important thing. If there is a silver lining to any of that, it's some people who maybe have not been paying attention then or maybe were born after because it was so long ago. Now, you know, there's a whole generation of people who maybe were born already, but we're not following the news. But now they're reintroduced to this story. And I'm really grateful to you for sharing it with me and me having the opportunity here to kind of present it in full. That's why I was asking you all those questions to describe in detail, like what your relationship was and how did it happen and what impact it had? Because I feel that people need to hear this story and right. they have an opportunity to sort of go back to it now because it's brought back into the attention, yeah, into right. the eye of the public. Yeah, like when I had my son, I um, had him here in America in West Virginia and I gave him the name Shibley, which is means my lion cub, which is a really great name until he turned about seven and he's like I'm no one's cub I'm a lion um but I, I can imagine <laughs> yeah right I gave him the middle name of Daniel which is a version of Daniel and um and I raised him with stories about Danny uncle right so I always raised him telling him the, these stories like the fun stories and later when it would when it became appropriate telling him stories explaining his death but I want I do want people to know Danny uncle, you know, especially these kids that um, were everybody who was, who was born afterwards, because he, you know, he represents like goodness and friendship and, and uh, purity and joy that is timeless, right? It's timeless values that matter. Absolutely. But at this end, at the same time, he also represents the transition and kind of, well, there was this, Obviously, there was 9-11 attacks, but there, as you mentioned, like he was investigating the story of the shoe bomber. We yes. all take off shoes. Nobody even asks why. That's why I wanted but to explain that's, the kid. that's the moment yeah. when it happened. And here's a person who was investigating this situation and his uh, kidnapping and his murder is this kind of the transition from together with 9-11, the transition from the life before to the reality that we have now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I know. And I think we have to understand that because um, then we can understand where we're at today. What, why do we have beheadings today? You know, where did that begin? What are the roots of it? Uh, why, why do journalists now take, uh, you know, uh, defensive driving courses? You know, why did they learn counter surveillance? It's because this because this marked a, a, a change in the way journalists now have targets on their back. Yeah. This is what we lose. These are the people that we lose. These are the bright lights in society that we lose. And, and let's remember them so that we we keep people alive too, right? Yeah. That's, that's for sure. And, and to keep people living in peace and, you know, and pursuit of self-determination, like all these values that we care about. Yeah. I know we're super over time and I, but I, I would not, I, I would not forgive myself if uh -huh. I don't ask you. And um, I hope that you understand me and don't take it the wrong way. Oh no, never would. Uh, another thing that is unfolding this week specifically is the transition 
of power in in America. And that's a, probably the biggest story right now still. And so I know that um, in the previous election, you voted for President Trump. And so if you could quickly, because for some of I've read your uh points on that and I understand where you were coming from but I would like maybe if you could give a quick yeah. intro to that so that the audience understands and then address where we're standing right now with the transition yeah, yeah so you know all the listeners know you know the impacts of of life that have um have the kind of I, I think everybody understands pretty much like what matters to me and so when we were entering in the into the 2016 election, I was very disappointed by the response by the Democratic Party to the threat of Islamic extremism in the world. Um, they had decided to align with a movement in our Muslim communities align that, that ascribe to political Islam, that make excuses for the extremists by arguing that um, it's not Islam, you know, so they they want to avoid the issue by protecting the honor of the religion. When I when I've always believed you honor the religion by actually fighting for what you believe it, within the religion is best. And so I was very frustrated with um, that relationship. And when I what I was going uh, when I was going into the election, I um, decided to vote for Donald Trump because I saw in his candidacy, somebody who was going to deal directly with the issue of Islamic extremism. And I said uh, back then, actually at a conference of atheists, uh, look, uh, I know he's totally, you know, not the kind of leader that I would wish for this country, but given the choices that I had at the time, that's what I, that's what I voted for. Um, and I said, he will get for example, peace with Israel. I know that he will, because he's going to figure out a way to how to make the art of the deal happen. And he's going to push these Muslim countries um, forward through money, probably, and business, so that they abandon the most misogynistic, um, intolerant interpretations and, and anti-Semitic interpretations that really repulsed me, you know, and that, that I wanted our government to um, not just placate, but challenge. So, um, so sure enough, you know, four years later, do you feel that he did that with Saudis? Yeah, yeah like I, I do believe he he did do that with Saudi Arabia, and he's done it with the UAE. Like it's 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 um, Muslim country politics that helped him. Like I'm not arguing that from some genius that he had, he was able to just pull that off. But that they see Iran as such a threat that they are ready to align with Israel. You know to to realize um, uh, safety for themselves. And of course, Saudi's corrupt. Like, there's no doubt they are responsible for the killing of Jamal Khashoggi and, uh, you know, who's writing columns for the Washington Post when he was killed. Um, and they have women's rights activists in jail. So that's why I say, like, I'm, I, I and there's still a dictatorship, you know, and the UAE is a, is a financial dictatorship, you know, of ruling families. But we have, you know, movement on that front, and we didn't allow the Muslim Brotherhood types more entree into our governance. But you know, extreme of Donald Trump did empower those 
groups even more within America in a way that is very disturbing and troubling to me now as we go into the next administration. Um, and what I'm talking about is the rise of politicians in America like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and then community activists like Linda Sarsour who was the Palestinian American involved with the um, Women's March, you know, resistance on Trump. So the extreme of Donald Trump led to, um, I consider unholy alliances and dangerous alliances with Muslim groups in the US. Well, he also are... empowered the white supremacy. Yeah, so that's another, you know, extremism that of course is a, a, a threat and a, um, a reality. They, you know, perhaps, you know, because of like my own lens, right? I'm mm -hmm. paying attention to the, um, the Muslim side of what what I see also. So so that's that's a negative. But as we go into this next administration, the stuff that I'm watching that causes me concern is whether the um, the Islamist groups, including you know organizations within the United States with alliances with political Islam overseas get a front door now into the White House. You know, so for everybody who was has been concerned legitimately about Donald Trump's, you know, um, supporting white supremacists, like they should also have the same type of concern about a new administration supporting Muslim supremacists. Because if you have like intellectual consistency, right, then you're going to also be worried about any type of extremism. Yeah. And, and definitely during the Trump administration, I mean, I am opposed to uh, radical Christianity or ultra conservative Christianity. And so you cast what I told what I've always said was like a vote is not like a love letter, you know, you know, so it's not like a marriage forever or or, or a, um, unconditional love either. Um, and so there's so many problems that Donald Trump had obviously during his presidency, not least of which a really critical moment for me, of course, is of epiphany to me also was I realized how much national security um, defines my vote. And so, but my vote in 2016 was related to the Islamic threat. And then in 2020, obviously the national security, the number one national security threat became COVID-19. And so when Donald Trump just bumbled his way through that response, you know, that was like my moment of, hey, okay, this this president is a threat, you know, to our well-being and safety. Um, and I will just say, just, you know, to to be, I think this all of this stuff is complex. And and I know there's a lot of people who are like a hundred percent one way or the other related to presidents and politicians, but you know, just I passed a vote, but just from being a journalist and being a, a thinker, right? I'll have many different lenses on things. And I do see a threat today um, in the US with the um, new ideology of critical race theory mm -hmm. that um, is you know, taking over school systems from K through 12 and colleges and workplaces. Um, this you know, some some of us in our Muslim community, we, we we battle what we call political Islam is Islamism, and we call this wokeism, mm -hmm. and it's its own extreme, and it's ultimately, to me, 
dangerous also to identity and existence because it creates a new hierarchy of human value uh, where all of a sudden Jewish people are considered white and thus not minority and Asian um, kids in, you know, STEM programs are considered white adjacent and thus not minority. I think that Joe Biden is a centrist Democrat, but I fear for the far left side of the party and the wokest that will try to really uh, change, you know, it's this pendulum swinging, right? Like to swing the pendulum from Donald Trump's right to a far left. And, um, and the America that I believe in is, you know, uh, one of an inclusive humanity. I know that that's not been the case. Like I've lived it, I know it. It's not even an America that I believe in, but it's a world I believe in, right? It's, right. it's a world that is an inclusive humanity that gives people equal opportunity based on character, you know, the content of their character, not the color of their skin or their religion or their gender, right? All of these things. So that's, that's um, I fear that uh, we're gonna have this new hierarchy of human value that is destructive to not only um, our society, but like the individual psyche of children who all of a sudden, like if you're an immigrant kid from Eastern Europe and you look white uh, and you're, you've gone through the same stories that like I went through as a girl of color, you don't matter. And, and that's where I say like an inclusive humanity honors the struggles of each person without creating a competition, right, of suffering. And I want no child to feel like there's, uh, they're less than, there's a competition or they should be ashamed of who they are because they're not this color or that color. And so that's, that's what I, I think like we all have to work towards and, and definitely, you know, um, we're at a, like a challenging moment. And I hope that um, we can all like be fully self-realized that nobody has to compartmentalize part of who they are because they have to, they feel shame about it for the, the reasons of identity politics today. Right. Well, any, any shame or guilt assigned because of identity is just not helpful. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it will not serve the other group to shame or guilt the other right. one group. Right. Because you're just using the weapon of the oppressors then. I mean, really. And that's the moment that progressive movements are in right now to make sure that they don't repeat the negative values that they have rejected. Despite that vote, you know, I'm still a registered Democrat. I'm still uh, a flag-waving liberal, you know. Well, I'm happy um, to hear that. And thank you for saying that, because I know that a lot of people um, assign a huge importance to that vote. And of course, every vote is very important and making a decision, but it's, it's great. It's great to have you on our side. That's what I want to say, because oh, we do yeah. need, uh, we do need to keep balance and keeping balance requires the courage to speak your mind. And I think that is one of the beautiful things that, demo that America has created is, democracy and opportunity to challenge and discuss ideas yeah and and create a competition of idea for the best ideas to win and right. i i'm very happy to to have you in that yeah thank you because i and i appreciate you um 
you know, daring to go there uh, on this topic because people don't want to talk about um, any people oftentimes don't want to talk to anybody who's voted for Trump. They want to uh, people who don't like him, you know, they they compartmentalize there, too. But it's it, you you've allowed me to like fuse that part of myself too because it's complicated like we're all complicated and the only way to deal with it is with honesty but but the truth is that like after I wrote my op-ed there's such a backlash and so much shaming and so much hostility and aggression and honestly like I, I wrote my op-ed after the vote. So that, that just the fact that I published it after the vote should reveal to people that I wasn't trying to change anybody's mind about the election um, or, or how to vote, but to help people understand those that voted for Trump so that they could integrate them into their understanding of America in a way that wouldn't be like us versus them and and it didn't. I didn't. It didn't work. It didn't work. I, just, I was a fool's errand, and a, but that's because I had so much against me. There's such a movement against Trump, obviously, that like galvanized. It wanted to bifurcate people too, um, and so I really, I just, I just, um, you know, slipped away then on this. I didn't talk about it for all these years. Honestly, four years later, I've barely talked about it then because I don't usually can find somebody who can uh, accept it and hear it and understand it as a part of the entirety of who I am. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm at that point where I'm like, okay, I'm not going to fight it then, but I, and I won't insist on it. I won't create new troubles for myself, but, but I'm happy that we are able to talk about it because then it's, it's, you know, it is part of my life and part of my identity and and it is part of what I bring in. I bring into this next chapter of America, um, this this kind of trying to keep things in balance. Really, that's what it is: keeping it in balance. Because anybody of real um, liberal progressive values, I think, cannot really live with a society that's off balance. That's yeah, well, you don't, you don't want anyone. to. You don't you don't want to be in that society. That's yeah. uh, for sure. I come from one of those. I know. Exactly. Um, and that's why voices like yours to me also just to just to say are so important. Like I've learned so much from immigrant um, families and uh, that have come from China that have lived that reality there. And I feel like the immigrants that came from Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Republic have a wisdom that we have to hear. They've lived totalitarian, they've lived oppressive, you know, and they have, they give us balance and yeah, your stories matter. So I, I, um, I thank you for. Thank you. Me. I've yeah. had such great time and I really appreciate you being so open and willing to go to those, to those uh, tricky destinations uh, emotionally and intellectually. And I hope that um, people get get through this and I'm sure they will get a lot out of this. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much, Sasha. You're a gift to the world. Oh, thank you. You are. You are. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was interesting. I'm really curious to hear what you guys think, so shoot me a message, let me know, and share this show with a friend. 
You know, in the view of last week's events and in the anticipation of the coming weeks and really months and years of tension, I think that this conversation can actually be of value. America is divided and will remain divided. And I think we all know that yelling at the other side doesn't get you much further in any kind of negotiation. We have to look for a common ground with the other side, and we really have to hold on to it. Opposing extremism of all colors is a solid ground to hold on to. And I hope you can find a person on the other side to talk to. I hope you can hear them. And I hope they can hear you because we have to keep talking. And so maybe share this episode with a friend or a loved one on the other side. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Stay safe. Love you all. Peace. Country, you can keep the rest. This is my country, my damn country, and it don't mean a thing.